Hey, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series, focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member at universities in the U.S. and Germany. My guest today is Brian Ferguson. Brian spent the past 15 years working in high-performance organizations, learning from the leaders and decision makers in national security, the military, and technology. He used these experiences to build Arena Labs, a company focused on catalyzing human potential by leveraging the wisdom and experience of men and women who have achieved, achieved extraordinary success in the arena. Brian worked with a, a wide range of business and institutions to understand how to balance modern technology and the age-old first principles of high performance to construct adaptive, flexible organizations. Arena Labs focuses on heavily in uh, medicine and specifically high-performance medicine. Before founding Arena Labs, Brian worked in a variety of positions in national security and defense. He worked in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Early in his career, Brian worked in the White House and founded the Global Trends Group, a political and economic risk analysis firm. So I want this Voice America series to provide valuable information to leaders and emerging leaders that will prepare them to lead their organizations in the dynamic times we currently face. The more highly effective leaders we have, the better the journey. Also, I hope the show shares options that promote an environment where our national and global audience continue to find new ways to work together peacefully and effectively across borders. You know, for most of us, especially in challenging leadership roles, we're working so many hours a day that we rarely have the opportunity to step back and update how we lead, and yet to, to navigate the changes we're facing, we need to do exactly that. So my goal in creating this series was to expose existing leaders and emerging leaders to the highest impact people that we can so that you have the opportunity to learn something that you can implement quickly and easily in, in your uh, busy lives. And I'm sure that Brian will provide us with that opportunity. In today's session, we're going to talk about the the greatest story of the 21st century is not technology, but how technology will be used as a tool to deepen the levels of human potential. So Brian talks about his work leveraging the most proven performers, time-honored principles, and cutting-edge technology to develop unique performance solutions for a wide range of arenas from medicine to agriculture. Brian, we're delighted to have you join us. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate it, Maureen. It's great to be here. So let's jump right in. Why has innovation become such a buzzword in recent years? You know, I, I look back, I so to your introduction there, I've had sort of a, a bizarre uh, checkered career, which in, in retrospect has been incredibly fortunate. Like anything, I think on the front end, you, you're not exactly sure where you're going, but my passion was always around creativity, new ideas and organizations that are, that are thinking hard about the challenges of the world. And innovation, going back for me about 12 years, I was involved in a first quote-unquote innovation program 
And this was actually at the time I was working in a military organization down in Miami, Florida. Uh, but it opened my eyes to the idea of, of how does an institution or organization deliberately create an entity that is thinking about new ideas or in iterating or improving on a business model or a product. And in the course of that, I became very passionate about this notion of innovation. Now, today, 12, 15 years later, it's become a bit cliched in our world. Everyone has an innovation cell or a program. Uh, and so in the latter part of my career in national security, up until about two years ago, I spent a lot of time thinking about what what's going on that is creating this sort of demand around innovation. And ultimately for me, I, I think about there's three trends in the world. One is that we're incredibly super connected and these statistics and, and these are things that everyone listening, I'm sure lives and breathes no matter what discipline you're in, but the idea that at the turn of the century, roughly 5% of the global population is online. Today over 50% of the world is online. And then you think about how we've become hyper-empowered via the mobile phone. So now you can be in in East Africa, on the Maasai Mara, with a cell phone, you can have access to the same information as someone in New York City. Uh, and then there's this uh, world of abundant information. So there's, uh, I, I find it fascinating that 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years. So we have this, this paradigm where people are super empowered, hyper-connected, there's an incredible amount of information, and suddenly innovation uh, is something that's absolutely necessary to, for survival because the world is changing at such a fast rate. Um, so we spend a lot of time in Arena Labs thinking about what, whatever discipline you're in, how are you looking at innovation as that mechanism for survival, and, and what does that really look like for, for you or your organization? You know, I love one that you're looking at highest, um, most effective performers, and also the idea that we need to innovate performance, not just products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, you know, that's interesting. We, I, one of the reasons we talk, and you, you said it in the intro, that I deeply believe the greatest story of our time is not technology, but the ability of technology to deepen potential. And the reason we say that is that uh, I've certainly been guilty of it. You see this a lot in companies and organizations, uh, whether it's the military or medicine, that we look at technology as a solution. Uh, but but technology is a solution in a human system m- most of the time falls short uh, because integrating tech- technological platforms into human systems is really hard. And so at Arena, we always say in order to think about the advanced state of technology or to think about technology as an amplifier for performance, we first have to look at those first principles. Uh, what, are the, what are the basics that make an individual or a team effective? Uh, and that comes back to things that, you know, things that make us great today are no different than the things that made us great 200 years ago. Uh, and oftentimes organizations and companies and teams want to jump right into advanced artificial intelligence platforms or robotics. Um, but that, that baseline level around communication and ethos, the things that are very simple but difficult, uh, is, is just as important as, it, as it's ever been. So you just mentioned first principles, and I'm not sure all of our listeners are very familiar with those. You gave a high level. Can you go into a yeah. little bit more detail of, of what are those first principles of high performance? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we really steal this term, to be honest. Uh, this goes all the way back to, and this is the, the early days of Western philosophy and the notion that there are, what, what are the first principles around solving a problem? And if you, you know, you look at the, some of the early 
thinkers around logic, the idea was that you could boil any problem down to some, some basic core tenets or first principles. But in modern time, Elon Musk has really popularized this term again when he talks about you know, whether it's SpaceX and revolutionizing space travel or Tesla and revolutionizing automobile travel or energy, he says he always starts with first principles. Let's boil a problem down to, to, to those core tenets. And so when we talk about human performance or team performance, and, and we're, we're really talking about pushing the envelope uh, around potential, we often say let's start with those first principles. And, and when we're talking about the first principles of high performance, uh, at the end of the day they vary, but I, what we say is that unequivocally, the first principle of high performance, I don't care if you're uh, the top heart surgeon in the world, if you're uh, in special operations as a Green Beret, uh, or you work in business, but the first principle today unequivocally is humility. And it's not the humility that says don't boast or be, don't, bo- don't be braggadocious, but rather no matter how good you think you are or how good your team is, you can be better. There's more to learn. There's more to teach. And that, that simple shift in mindset is incredibly powerful. And when you look across sports and medicine, et cetera, you start to see that people on the cutting edge, are, they have this hunger to learn that's rooted in humility. Uh, and then as we start to move through the rest of those first principles, part of what we do at Arena is, is often look, uh, sit with an organization and, and think through what, what are, how, how do those first principles apply to you and, and what are the ones that then after humility rise to the top? And I can tell you, Maureen, that it, it usually ends up being some version of harnessing creativity and fear. And so what I mean by that is if, if so the, this is where a sports analogy, I think, is usually the easiest way to think about it, but we do work with someone named Dr. Andy Walsh. Uh, for any listener that doesn't know who he is, I, I heavily recommend Googling him, um, but he's really a pioneer in the, in the modern world of human performance. I had a privilege of working with him early on in my career, and one of the things that Andy talks about is that when you look at a discipline, again, whether it's business or medicine, but let's take sport as an example, take Michael Jordan. What Michael Jordan really did to revolutionize basketball is he brought a creative edge to the game. And, and people who push the envelope in a discipline bring this creativity. And, and so it allows the business or the game or the organization to evolve. That creativity often comes out of this sort of fear of performance. Right? It's natural for us to worry about the future and how do we perform, how do we go to the next level. So organizations and individuals that are able to find some creativity uh, in that fear are, are those who really start to change the game or push the envelope. And, and you, you can look again across medicine, special operations, you know, the, the new tech environment. And it's a really powerful uh, way of thinking. And obviously that's something we can deconstruct because there's a lot in there. Um, and then the third one that, that we always come back to, so we, you know, we just talked about humility, finding creativity and fear. And the third is savoring the grind. Uh, and it sounds a bit trite or cliche, but I'll tell you that, again, in a world where things can be so easy or seemingly easy through technology, uh, organizations and, and leaders who know how to grind and savor that grind, the hard work of being, quote-unquote, in the arena, uh, that is a, a core tenet or first principle of, of becoming high-performing in today's world. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we built... A set of leadership competencies based on the kind of the level five leadership model and humility is the first one same as yours and, and it is not being overly humble so as you said but focusing on the mission rather than myself and that 
ability to reflect and recognize that we are we continually need to learn. Yeah, it's, and it's uh, it's powerful when you see it because I think a lot of people there there are disciplines or environments where that's seen as weakness. But again, when I've worked, you know, we've been privileged the last two weeks as an example. Two weeks ago, we were down at a hospital, and, and one of the folks on our team was a blue angel. And he, and he talks about, you know, the, the Blue Angels here, you know, for those who aren't familiar, they're a group of, of F-18 fighter jet pilots that do air shows around the world. They do about 300 air shows a year. And before and after every single show, they have this ruthless deep dive into how they could do their show better, how at the individual level they can improve. And when you hear one of the best fighter pilots in the world talk about that process, it's really enlightening. And then, you know, this last week we were just in Washington, D.C., at the nation's capital, Level 1 Trauma Center. So this is a place that deals with, you know, the, the, the shooting that happened at the congressional baseball game last year. They handled the intake of, of all those um, individuals who were, who were shot. And the director of trauma there is a guy, again, who's at the top of his game, incredibly well-respected, and yet he's sitting in a room saying, how can we do this better? How can we rethink or reimagine our processes uh, and that simple humility to learn and change and, and again, innovate is incredibly powerful in, in today's paradigm. Well, and then the other thing you said that also really resonates is embrace the grind. I mean, that may not be exactly your wording. Yeah, but they were the grind, absolutely. Yeah. Much, much of what we do means we just show up and do the work we're here to do. And often what people see of, of what we do as leaders looks really exciting, but behind the scenes, it's a grind often. Absolutely. And that's, and, and I think I'm, I'm not a cynic. I mean, there's a lot of people who get very cynical about, you know, quote unquote, the millennial generation or where the world's going. I think there's a, there's a lot of beauty and opportunity in the way technology has allowed us to connect and evolve. But, but one of the things I do get, that, that worries me a bit. Uh, personally, I try to stay off social media uh, because it's easy to get trapped in that idea of seeing other people's lives as either being easy or coming together beautifully. Uh, and at the end of the day, we know that you know when you when you take these people who are icons, whether it's Elon Musk, you know Oprah Winfrey, uh, the, these leaders in our world, and you reverse engineer where they came from, there's an incredible grind to get there that that is amazingly powerful is easy to overlook. And so what we love about our work at Arena Labs, and really the namesake comes from this quote from Teddy Roosevelt about that grind, is that the people who are willing to stand in the arena and sort of take the punches and sweat and bleed a little bit to learn, uh, that in, again, in today's world, uh, that, that just is, it, it, a lot of folks overlook it for ease of technology or social media. And uh, what you learn is that, it, again, it hasn't changed. And so the ability to savor that grind is really at the core of amazing individuals and organizations in today's world. You know, I realize I, I'm probably now belabor. I've had the incredible opportunity to interview people who are at top of their game across a broad range of fields, everything from extreme athletes to world leaders and I think all of them have in common that they can talk about failures where they learn, where they use those deep personal failures or shortcomings to change their lives and propel them to a place that is significantly more effective than where they were initially. No, absolutely. And, and there's, 
yeah, I think a lot of writing and, and phenomenal individuals who, who talk in depth about about failure and thinking about failure as a catalyst for introspection and evolution. I think each of us, um, and, and, there, and there are different, there are profound levels of failure. There's, there's, I mean, even at the individual emotional level of loss in life, there's, there's a lot we learn in those moments. But I, I do think I mean, when we bring this back to the high-performing teams, what we see is that key, leaders and teams are key members of teams who understand how to cultivate failure in a positive way for learning and innovation. Get, they, there's this uh, culture that's inculcated into a team that's really powerful. And so you think about, you know, I mean, obviously there are certain environments that are quote-unquote no-fail. That's, you know, a special operations team on a mission or a surgical team doing heart surgery. There's an element there where, of course, life and death that you can't fail. But there are micro-failures or things that we can do that allow us to get better uh, and when we build infrastructure in a team around that as a learning point to better the entire team rather than to, to sort of sweep it under the rug or talk about it as a, a major point of weakness, uh, that's simple. Again, evolution and thinking is powerful. But I also recognize that there are plenty of organizations where if the level of trust hasn't been cultivated where people can talk openly about failure at the individual level or with a teammate, uh, it really precludes that evolution. So again, going to that next level to the folks you're interviewing, extreme athletes, et cetera, um, they come from worlds where failure is just considered part of learning and growing. And that's, that's really powerful. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Today our guest is Brian Ferguson. So Brian, you've talked about technology not being the primary driver, but an enabler or an amplifier. So let's shift a little bit to technology and Moore's Law and the idea that the technology we have at our fingertips is accelerating at an, an increasing rate. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, uh, I guess, taking a step back for a lot of folks who, who might not know what Moore's Law is. I certainly didn't until several years ago. But but for context here, um, as you said on the on the front end that I, and we briefly discussed, I've sort of had a, a, a weird career in a number of disciplines. When we talk about national security, that's uh, working in a, a place like the Pentagon, where you've got intelligence and diplomacy and, and military worlds all coming together. The reason that's fascinating is this: these end up being global challenges, uh, obviously spread across a world that's changing. And so when I was in, in my the early part of my career in national security and then later in the military, there was often this sort of unspoken reality um, underneath, whether that was you know, strategy around the world for security or on the battlefield thinking about tactics. And, and that reality for me was that the world seemed to be changing at a faster and faster rate than we could keep up with. And so because I'd had this weird career where I was first working at it, it, the strategic level of national security, so in a place like the Pentagon, and then I went into the military, I was older when I'd gone to the military and I'd already had this sort of strategic perspective that a lot of folks end up getting later in their career. So I kind of did my career backwards, if that makes sense. And so here I was now at the, the quote-unquote tactical level. What I found is that the things at the tactical level were, were changing equally, if not faster, than the things I'd seen at the strategic level. As I grappled with what was going on, I stumbled across uh, some work by a gentleman named Ray Kurzweil, who's at Singularity University. 
Uh, and we, we don't need to go into too much depth, but Singularity University is now based out of NASA Ames Research Park in Silicon Valley. And what they look at is essentially, this is an oversimplification, but the impact of Moore's Law on society. So I went through their executive program back in 2012. They often say that we all find a set of ideas that seem to make the world clear for us. When, when, when there's something we can't quite articulate or it just seems to be bothering us as leaders, and we suddenly stumble upon an explanation, it's incredibly enlightening. And so for me, that was singularity. And what singularity talked about is this, the idea of accelerating technology. So they use the, the terminology exponential technology. Uh, and that, again, goes back to, to Moore's Law, which is the namesake comes from Gordon Moore, who is one of the founders of Intel. And for the purposes of oversimplification, just for listeners who this concept is new, Moore's Law essentially says that every two years, the density of a, a processing chip, so processing power in our cell phones or our computers, it doubles. So every two years, it's getting twice as fast, which means it's exponential. Uh, so something that doubles every two years, if, if I take 30 steps in a linear fashion, I would go 30 yards. But if I take 30 exponential steps, meaning each step is twice as long as the previous step, I now would, I could circumnavigate the globe 27 times. And so it's something that's exp growing exponentially. It's, it's hard for our minds to comprehend because it just grows so fast. And so Moore's Law is, is putting into practice this, this idea that I was struggling with, which is why are things moving faster and faster? And so the reason that's relevant in today's world, if you think about just our cell phones, how much capability in two years, if something doubles, we suddenly have this amazing amount of processing capability at our fingertips. And the reason that's all that's important for anyone today, again, whatever field you're in, is it comes back to this deeper notion that the world seems to be moving at a faster and faster rate. So when you talk to leaders in, in any part of, in any field, in agricultural or medicine or sports, you often hear people say things like, I just can't keep up. There's, there's too much. I don't have enough time. Uh, and the reason that's a, that's a really profound, important statement is that we all feel it because of Moore's Law, because technology is forcing us uh, to move as a society in, a, in what seems like a, a faster pace. And so we talk pretty con consistently about Ray Kurzweil's work and the idea that the rate of technology change over this century is going to be 20,000 times what it was in the last century. So, yeah, it raises the question of how do we integrate that technology into our lives? And, and for me, the big question is how do I personally keep up just as a human being and then how will I keep up as a leader? Yeah, and that's spot on, Maureen. I think everyone, uh, even even people who work in technology and are passionate about it, I mean, a lot of people on our team who, who think about tech in depth and they still think about a new version of software. Suddenly, you know, now we have artificial intelligence platforms that are fundamentally changing you know, how a Navy ship operates, as an example, or potentially how we drive in terms of autonomy. And so all of those trends are, they're challenging. And they, they, if we bring this back, we bring Moore's Law back to two things. One is that if just recognizing accelerating technological change is important for leaders because if we begin to recognize it, it actually changes strategy. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, uh, let's take as an example, if you're someone in the Pentagon who's, who 20 years ago, 
you might think about a strategy as something that was 10 or 20 years out. Um, but again, in a world that's changing as fast as it is, it's, it's really difficult for any of us to think about strategy beyond a one to two year horizon because the world's just going to be so different. And so if we pull that thread a little more, that means that strategy is actually no longer about this, uh, about what our, how we're thinking about our adversaries or our competition, but instead, how do we organize ourselves? So as a, as a business or as a you know, medical institution or in the military, the way that we organize, if we, can, if we can build teams and structures that are adaptive and flexible, we can be prepared for that change. Uh, and then to your question, Maureen, or your point at the individual level, what does that mean for us? You know, Danny Kahneman, obviously uh, Nobel, um, uh, Nobel laureate, amazing thinker. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He's got mm-hmm. this great quote, and a, a, a friend that we work with, a guy named Dr. Preston Klein out of Wharton, had asked Danny Kahneman, what happens when the rate of technological change outpaces the rate of learning? So one more time, when the, the rate of change in our world, like the, think about information technology, when that outpaces the rate of learning, what happens? And Danny Kahneman's response was, experts cease to exist. And so you see this in any field. You know, if, if you are a surgeon who went through medical school 30 years ago, the world has changed dramatically. And if you haven't figured out how to evolve your own learning style, you probably feel pretty far behind the power curve. Uh, and the same applies if, you're, if you work in the military as a leader or if you run a business. Uh, what worked 20 years ago probably doesn't work today. So we actually, all of us, and I, I don't, it really doesn't matter what you do in the world, all of us have to now become essentially professional learners. Uh, because once you go through school, you're just starting your trajectory in learning uh, because the world's going to be very different just two years from now. And that statement is summarizes my whole life purpose, that, that leaders need to accelerate their rate of learning and transforming how they lead, or what we end up with it is potentially incredibly suboptimal as we're not considering secondary, tertiary, and, and beyond that influences of every decision we make. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I think the other, you know, that, that, that if we pull that conversation a little more, one of the other things we start to look at is if once, once we migrate towards this learner's mindset, which again is rooted to the front end of our conversation and this first principle of humility, because we've got the humility to say, look, I may be uh, the, the best fighter pilot in the world or the, the greatest nurse, but I know that technology is going to change my field in a way that's going to force me to, to have to change. And I've got that humility to learn. That, that's really that, that's foundational and really the bedrock of great leaders, great performers. But what happens is, again, if, if we pull that thread a little more on Moore's Law and the, a world continually becoming more interconnected and complex, even the greatest learner is going to struggle in that environment. And so the reason then... Uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about is this idea of the ruthless pursuit of unorthodox relationships. Let me say that one more time, the ruthless pursuit of unorthodox relationships. And if we deconstruct that a little bit, ruthless meaning you, it, it's something you have to do, you can't let up on it, and you're pursuing unorthodox or otherwise unfamiliar relationships. So again, 30 years ago, 
if, if you worked in the military, you could afford to just talk to other military leaders because you, your world was, it seemed insular. And the same applied to business and medicine. And so today, though, when we think about this really complex world that's changing incredibly fast, what we realize is a lot of other people have the same challenges and we can't afford to stay in our own silos. And so when as leaders or as high performers in organizations, when we take that spirit of humility and go outside of our discipline of medicine as an example and go talk to someone uh, who's in technology or who's an executive in business about challenges, there's this process that happens called consilience. And consilience is this term that essentially means when two people from different worlds or different realms come together and talk about a shared challenge, we, we create epiphanies or new solutions because we have two different perspectives, both talking about this world that's changing really fast and seems complex. And we share that perspective and start to realize that there's, by that, that combination of shared learning and perspective, we can come up with, with new solutions. Um, so that, it, it, again, if we pull, we continue to deconstruct our conversation here, it comes down to the spirit of humility uh, that is rooted in a world that's changing really fast and taking that humility out beyond what we know in a comfortable way to build relationships uh, outside of our, our traditional networks. And I mentioned we have also a, a competency model, and one of the seven is innately collaborative, and that sounds like it is pointing to the same thing you're pointing with the pursuit of unorthodox relationships we can no longer just collaborate with people within our four walls or in our discipline because the disruptions are coming from adjacent industries so we have to be attending to the adjacencies not just the comfortable traditional relationships no i love that and and again i think you know i i I don't know maybe you stumbled upon i'm not sure who's doing research in this space but it's I, i always uh, I don't have hard data to show, but my instincts tell me when you when you look at organizations or teams that have a higher rate of collaboration, particularly beyond their uh, their traditional discipline, that you just see at a minimum a higher rate of learning, which which I suspect normally translates to a, a higher rate of efficacy in, in how they're either doing business or operations. Um, Actually, you see this a lot in, in sport. I mean, sports teams that are at the cutting edge are out you know, talking well beyond sport, they're visiting with other extreme athletes or businesses or looking at, you know, as an example, how does, you know, how does uh, trauma medicine think about uh, critical moments? And it, so there's all these, there's this really interesting learning that, that happens as a result of collaboration. And one of the other competencies we talk about is being innately curious. So to your point, it, it's not in, in my immediate field. It, I have to be looking at across a broader range because the impact, if I don't, it can be catastrophic. So Absolutely. let's shift just a slight bit. And you, you talked about um, the archetype of a leader that will be effective in this world of dramatic change. Can you share a little bit about the archetypal qualities that you're seeing or anticipating in those leaders? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've sort of hit on them a lot, and you just said it, Maureen, and I mean, well, you know, I, I continue to come back to the spirit of humility, and I think it's, it's, matter, it's a matter of just semantics or definition, but 
because in my mind, when I think of a truly humble leader, again, you know, to the front end of our conversation, it's, it's not about uh, you know, traditional that you don't boast, don't brag, but rather the humility to say that I have more to learn no matter how much I've learned. I've got you know, more to understand about things beyond my own area of expertise. And so that then uh, gets into what you just said, which is really this, this spirit of being a lifelong learner. Um, so, you know, people who are comfortable, if you, if you truly frame yourself in the spirit of humility, there's all of these interesting second order effects that happen. One is, um, by nature, I think you, you start to explore things beyond your comfort zone and far more importantly, uh, confident, humble leaders, uh, they're not only comfortable with external opinions or contrarian thinking, they actually cultivate it, uh, and catalyze it. And again, in an if you're leading a team or an organization, and what we've just talked about is that in today's world to be effective, we have to cultivate that sort of disruptive or innovative thinking in order to stay ahead of constant dynamism and change. That, that starts with humility and the desire to, to be a lifelong learner. Um, then there's this idea that we just touched on about consilience, which again, I think it comes back to humility, but which says if, if you're building a collaborative environment and you're going out truly pursuing unorthodox relationships in this sort of ruthless manner for survival of your team or your organization, that's going to lead to consilience. That's going to lead to people finding solutions uh, that, that are perhaps already in practice or just haven't been fully articulated by someone in another discipline. Um, and then lastly, I, so, so, you know, if we bring that back, that's, it's really, I, I think it starts with humility and, and the spirit of lifelong learning, but the, the last one is, increasingly being comfortable in dynamism. Um, and I know that's not easy. There's some people who, who really prefer structure and predictability, um, but I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to find any discipline in today's world where predictability and structure uh, endure for more than a few years. And so we, we really have to get ourselves comfortable with that, with change and dynamism as, as leaders. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Today we are joined by guest Brian Ferguson. So, Brian, what challenges do all modern leaders face, in your opinion? Yeah, this is something that we continue to explore, Maureen, and it's, uh, I don't pretend to have the answers in, in total in any way, but I, I can tell you that um, we're privileged to work across this in, incredibly wide domain. So, uh, we, you know, we've worked again in national security with with special operations personnel, with fighter pilots, with people doing really interesting work in the military, diplomacy, and then we spend a lot of time in high performance medicine, working with a lot of the world's top surgical or medical leaders and nurses, uh, and then we do a lot of work in the in the extreme sport or pro sports space, and so we we're privileged to see people struggling uh, with the, what ends up really being a common set of challenges, and so when we Boil those down, I think there are three that seem to be profoundly, um, I suppose, or acutely uh, prevalent in just about every discipline. And so the, the first is this idea that every leader is trying to simplify complexity. So if we talk about, if we revisit the, the entire conversation to this point, it's really about this world where there's there's suddenly a hyper-connected world with people who are incredibly empowered at the individual level. There's a massive amount of data. And if you throw on top of that Moore's Law, the idea that every two years our technological capabilities are doubling, 
there's suddenly this radical change that's forcing us to change our organizations, how we function, how we look at the world. And as we're all interconnected, it suddenly feels amazingly complex. I mean, the average leader, I think, just figuring out what meetings matter, um, you know, how do I step back? I mean, you, the, the way you introduced our conversation is, is brilliant, which is the ability to step back and just think about our own disciplines is really difficult today. So simplifying complexity is, is the first. Uh, and then the second big challenge is transcending legacy structures. Um, and I know that's mm. a bit academic, but, but what I mean there is that, you know, if, if you look at just about every field, I would argue that what worked even 10 years ago doesn't work today. Now, a lot of our bigger institutional structures that we live within, that govern our lives, that we rely upon, like the government, our healthcare systems, our education systems, they were actually built in the 20th century. So we're talking 100 years now of legacy structure. Just think about how we, how we educate children, how medicine works, how the military works. It's incredibly difficult, and, and I'm not saying this is easy by any means. I mean, these are very, very hard problems, but how do you take an organization that was built in the 20th century and make it effective in the 21st century? Uh, so transcending that legacy structure is not only difficult, but the reason it's so vital is that there's this, this great uh, quote. So Warren Buffett's uh, longtime business partner, Charlie Munger, I'm sure this has been talked about on this podcast, but he talks about mental models of the world. And he, and he argues that all of us have these mental models that we rely upon. And one that he talks about is this idea that the territory is not the map. Let me say mm-hmm. that again. The territory is not the map. Uh, and so what, what we mean is that, if, again, if you think back to take banking as an example. So we did work with the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve, again, built in the 20th century. And the Federal Reserve breaks the world up or the United States up into these 12 very clean regionals, regions. So you got 12 regions in the Federal Reserve that they then govern finance. And you, but you think about modern finance, this global networked uh, paradigm, well, nothing really stays cleanly in any of those 12 regions. And so the map they have that was built in the 20th century is no longer the territory of global finance. Uh, and you make you can make the same argument for most businesses. We build these maps that we teach people, you know, that are either our, our sales teams or our educators, hey, this is your quote-unquote map. But that map isn't actually the territory that we're thinking about. Um, so transcending that legacy structure is an incredibly challenging uh, thing to do because that usually means totally restructuring or reorganize, reorganizing our businesses or our teams or organizations. And if... We're a small business. That's maybe not a big, a big deal. But if we're, you know, an, an education system or a healthcare system, that's a, that's a fundamentally uh, new, new direction in the world. Um, so the first two I just mentioned: one in terms of challenges modern leaders face; one is simplifying complexity; two, transcending legacy structures; and then the third is reimagining human systems. Um, and again, Maureen, we, you know, we talked about technology and accelerating technology and, and how that's forcing people to become lifelong learners. Um, but in all of that, then, you know, if we have a human system, the way that we trained people, the way that we educated them, again, even 10 years ago, is probably different than what we need to do today. Uh, and that means that the people that we're hiring and how we're training them has to be different because we fundamentally need them to operate differently. Um, and when we talk about massive organizations like the Department of Defense or 
a healthcare system, that is, it's one thing to say, but that's really difficult to do. Um, and, and you look at, you know, I, one of the examples I like to give is, you know, the first drone uh, flew in 2002 in Afghanistan operationally. And then over the course of that next decade, there was this massive explosion of drone technology in the military. And there's a lot of controversy around drones, but at the end of the day, drones also saved a lot of lives because one of the things it did is it took a pilot out of the cockpit. But now if you work in the Air Force, an example, you know, pilots are no longer in the cockpit, they're in drone centers. And so a person sitting in a drone center, not in the air, you train them differently, they've got to think differently. Uh, and that's, that's really, that, that's again, a whole shift in direction for an organization. We, we also, Arena Labs, we do a lot of work in modern agriculture. And you think of, you know, the agrarian economy is what the Amer- America was built on and, and the modern farmer. And so a modern farmer using drone analytics for crop yield production, you know, that's a pretty massive paradigm shift, which means we've got to train a farmer who's done things a, a similar way for the last 100, 200 years to think differently. That, that's reimagining an entire human system. Uh, and none of that is, and, and I, I don't want to sound, um, I'm oversimplifying here because I recognize all these things are really difficult. It's what we spend a lot of time in Arena Labs thinking about, but Again, that, those three things in terms of modern challenges every leader's face are simplifying complexity, transcending our legacy structures, and, and reimagining human systems. So as you talk about this, one of the books I read recently that I loved was um, Meg Wheatley's book. And what struck me is when, when our current governance structure was built, we still, to communicate with other countries, were, would write letters hand them to a person on a horse that would take them to a coast and they would get on a ship and they would sail across the ocean. So potentially months to communicate with people in other countries. And now that is merely or almost instantaneous. And so the way we interact with people around the globe has changed dramatically, yet much of our, our nation structure, our tariff structure, how we interact in, with in the space of diplomacy has not, in my view, changed at the rate that our technology has changed. And I wonder how much that influences the friction in the system that is no longer required. Yeah, I mean, that I, I think is the essence. I mean, it, one of the things I talk about is that it's very easy to be cynical about the world today when we, when we jump into the, the realm of politics and governance. And what I've, you know, I, I deeply believe that uh, our current state of politics is, um, it's just symptomatic, symptomatic of the larger problem, which is we've got these structures that, again, were built uh, in some cases over 100 years ago that are, that are still governing. Now, I, I think it's important to recognize, I mean, this is a, a different conversation, but uh, on one hand, it's frustrating, right, that there are these the, the systems and structures that were built that led to this architecture, global architecture, like things, embassies and communication systems and ways of doing business uh, that still prevail today. The other side of that that I think is that I, I, that I, I just came from Washington, D.C., and on the way to the Reagan National Airport, you, you know, passed the Jefferson Memorial, and I think it's insane that people in the late 1700s put together a structure that is still effective today um, in terms of, of how we think about governing a nation or, or building a nation. Um, but where I think we've lost, where we struggle is a lot of those systems 
we're afraid to change or to make to modernize. Um, and so by holding on to certain sacred cows and, and particularly in infrastructure, um, it's, it makes it really hard. And, and most nations are struggling with this, to be honest. I mean, if, if you look at the national level, there, there's this constant friction between rate of change in technology, what that means for society, and how a nation governs. Um, and again, I'm not pretending that's an easy problem, but that is really continues to be at the center of a lot of global challenges. I mean, the headlines today are talking about tariffs, steel tariffs. And I mean, these are conversations that we were having 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and this then re reillumines your point, transcending legacy structures and reimagining those systems for the next 100 years. Uh, it's incredibly difficult work, especially when our identities are largely tied to the legacy systems. Absolutely. And I think the other, the other element here is that if we don't, if we, if we think about what we talk, what we incentivize in the private sector um, or in all the other disciplines we talked about, which is this idea of the ruthless pursuit of an orthodox relationships, really cultivating in some, some ways contrarian thinking or new ideas um, that certainly applies to the government, and I'm not making it, this is not political at all, this applies equally to both political parties, but uh, what you often see is an inability, uh, because of incentive systems, to, to truly be disruptive and innovative in thinking, um, and that then leads to us falling back on what we already know, and that's really dangerous, because again, if, if we're using the same map for a totally different territory, uh, that becomes incredibly problematic, and I, I think we would all agree that right now a lot of what we see in the world is uh, people using a, the same map that's been around a long time for a totally different set of challenges and problems. Mm-hmm. So I love that we're using this as an example, but I want to shift gears because we're a few minutes from the end. Can you give us a, a one minute, and I realize we're summarizing a whole body of work in a minute or two, uh, about singularity? Absolutely, and, and I'll, I'll oversimplify it. I would encourage folks, I'm, I'm fortunate to be on faculty there. I, I once in a while, I do talks both on, on the future of human performance, uh, on innovation, and, and really on global security. Um, but the, the two founders are Ray Kurzweil, uh, spent a lot of his career in MIT, uh, has an amazing number of patents around technology for the blind. Um, and he wrote a book called The Singularity is Near, and around, uh, right around 2000, 2005, in that window. And, and what he argued, again, if, if, you know, if you heard the first part of this discussion about Moore's Law, I'm going to oversimplify his argument, but, but he, he basically argued that Moore's Law is having a far deeper impact on humanity and on society than any of us appreciate. Um, and then if you, if you let Moore's Law play out, even if Moore's Law evolves, there's a whole different discussion around processing power and, and how long processing is actually able to double before we jump into another technology. But at the end of the day, if you think about a society that's constantly evolving, um, and, and accelerating. At some point, we start to see these amazing breakthroughs that we're seeing now in, in education and in autonomy, uh, robotics, medicine. And so that's really changing the way that we live as a species and, and, and humanity. And so he teamed up with somebody named Peter Diamandis, who had created the X Prize. Uh, for those who may remember, in 1997, I think he offered $10 million to the first person or group of people who'd get into space on a privately built aircraft. That was claimed in 2003, and that really began the privatization of space travel. Uh, so Diamandis and Kurzweil teamed up and wanted to create a university that, again, 
was built to keep up with the speed of change. Uh, so it's very non-traditional. Uh, the, the content there, I think, is extraordinary. I mean, some of it is, is a bit more futuristic, but no matter what discipline you're in, I can guarantee you it will challenge your thinking. You may not agree with it, but it'll get you thinking about the impact of technology on society and, and what it means from a sheer technological standpoint all the way to what are the ethics of, you know, as an example, artificial intelligence algorithms for prediction of cancer. Um, and then at what point should a doctor be required to use an AI platform to look at your genetic code to see whether or not you have a predisposition to something like um, a particular disease. So these are a lot of these fascinating ethical debates that, that result out of technology. But um, I definitely recommend looking it up. They do a lot of online content, a lot of programs around the world. But it's, it's definitely, to our conversation, Maureen, I think a very relevant uh, body of work and discipline. Thank you so much. So can you give us the 30-second, how would people reach you and learn more about your work? Yeah, I appreciate it, Maureen. I, I'm, I'm probably um, not a good guest in this regard because I, I actually believe that there's some value in, in sort of contrarian thinking on our end at Arena is, is staying relatively off the radar when it comes to social media. So we don't do uh, very much online at all. Uh, try not to scream into the wind and take pride in, in sort of quietly working with some marquee mm-hmm. groups. But uh, I, I, arenalabs.global uh, is our website. And then I, I'm brian at arenalabs.global. For anyone who wants to just connect with me uh, directly, that may be dangerous. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how many folks actually reach <laughs> out. But I, I love this conversation. I'm passionate about it. Uh, most of our work right now is in high-performance medicine. So anyone who works in the field of medicine who's interested in thinking about you know, how we optimize the modern surgical team, um, both, you know, from the nurse to a surgeon to how that team functions. That's We do a lot of work there. We have, I think, a, a world-class, unprecedented team in that space, and it's a, it's a passion of ours. But um, love can, continuing this conversation around performance, technology, or, or really the future human potential. And uh, I have to say that I always appreciate people who are willing to have a discussion that thing is, is looking into the future a little bit, Maureen. So, so, again, thank you so much for allowing me on the show with your listeners. Thank you so much, Brian. We really appreciate your insights and the idea that contrarian thinking is so valuable. Much of our philosophy, while we're using slightly different words, is so aligned. And I appreciate that we are encouraging people to think about the big disruptions, transcending legacy systems, reimagining human systems and human potential. So for our listeners, I hope you heard something that you can put into practice or continue to reflect on this week and going forward. Please leave us comments, either reach out to me directly, info at metcalf-associates.com, or go to our Facebook page, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, and we look forward to connecting with you again next week.